Amen. Amen. Today's sermon text is Matthew chapter 28. If you want to uh, grab a Bible or uh, grab a device and turn it on, thank you, Donnie, for leading us in corporate worship. Every time we sing that song, I think back to my college days. Um, I had that uh, line written in my baseball cap uh, where I played college baseball. I had become a Christian, started following Jesus. Uh, my sophomore year, and I would get so down after games, I would have to remind myself of the resurrection uh, constantly uh, because he lives. I was gospeling myself uh, in those moments of, uh, of, of baseball. Jesus has changed my life, and uh, you're tuning in today, and many of you have been changed uh, by the grace of Jesus as well. And because he lives, we can uh, face tomorrow. Uh, because he lives, we can face today. Uh, and um, life really is worth living because he lives. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 20, I'll read the entire text. Uh, if you would like to stand, of course, again, uh, you're welcome, uh, as I know that might be a bit awkward, uh, but I always want to at least invite you uh, to do that. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 20. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. Through the risen Christ we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated if you were standing awkwardly there in your house in your pajamas or maybe you dressed up today. I don't know. As we think about uh, this story of Matthew chapter 28, I was reminded of uh, the great author Tolkien who wrote uh, The Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings among many other stories. Um, uh, Tolkien wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories. 
Uh, and in this essay, uh, he tries to get at the appeal of fantasy. Why is it that people love fiction? Why do people love fantasy? Um, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, the list goes on. And Tolkien says in this essay that there is something, something in the human heart that deeply desires several things. Tim Keller, on reflecting on this article, summarizes it for us, saying that we desire escape from time, escape from death. We want love without parting. We want to communicate with non-human beings. And we want to see good triumphing over evil. And a story that realistically and artistically captures this, it captivates us. We want all of these things. And why is that? Well, atheists have their own explanations. But as Christians, we believe at a deep level, this is the life we were made for. We were not made to die. We were not made to have relationships broken and loved ones taken from us. We were not made to see evil triumphing. We're not made to see a virus triumphing. The good news today on Easter is that if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, through faith in him, you will literally have all of those things. You will escape death. You will escape time. You will have love without parting. You will see good triumphing over evil, and you will communicate with God in his presence forever. And that, my friend, is amazing. <laughs> we live in a world now that is filled with death. It's filled with separation. It's filled with evil. And the gospel fulfills these deepest longings in our hearts. Tolkien says in that essay, the gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. And among its marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable happy ending. Or as his uh, buddy C.S. Lewis uh, liked to say, Christianity is the true myth. It's the true story and all other mythologies, all other stories that a person could write, the things that are interesting and captivating are echoes of that really true story. And that's what we're in on today. If you're not a Christian, you know, I just would ask you, don't you want these things? Don't you want a love without parting? And don't you want good triumphing over evil? Uh, and don't you want to escape death? Well, we invite you in to at least consider whether or not the resurrection is true. And if you are a Christian, does this story incite awe in you today? Do the implications of the resurrection inspire you today? Well, Matthew 28 is where we're going to look at uh, what we're going to look at today as we see Matthew giving us uh, really a, a marvelous account of the resurrection of Jesus. It's good news for two big reasons. Matthew wants us to know, number one, that this story is true. Like he's, he's very interested in you seeing the facts about what has happened. That's why he includes this little uh, story about, let's make up a story that the guards stole the body. Only Matthew includes that. He really wants you to know that there are false stories being promoted. He wants you to know the true story, that the resurrection really happened. The second thing that Matthew wants you to know is that there is grace available for failures, for sinners. You know, it's, it's one thing for the story to be true, but what if you couldn't benefit from it? 
because you couldn't merit it or you weren't good enough. Well, Matthew wants to know that the way you get in on resurrection life is not by trying harder or being morally better, but by faith in Jesus. It's grace. Grace is available. He wants you to know that the story is true and there's grace for you. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. It's one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, I would argue, because it begins with the greatest news, Jesus is alive, and it ends with the greatest mission, make disciples of all nations. Matthew also links the beginning of his gospel with the end of his gospel. He links, if you like, Christmas with Easter. At the birth of Jesus, we read of Emmanuel, God with us. At the conclusion of his book, we read of Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. At his birth, Jesus is called King of the Jews. Here at the end, all authority is given to Jesus. At his birth, wise men come in from, from Gentile lands to worship him. Here we see of the disciples worshiping and then being sent into Gentile lands to make more worshipers. So it's a wonderful conclusion as he bookends uh, this, this, glorious, uh, this glorious gospel. So we're going to read about this bodily resurrection, and as you think about it, it truly is remarkable. If you just picked up a Bible, right, and you started with Genesis, and somehow you made it through Leviticus, and somehow you made it through the Old Testament, and you got to the Gospels, and you knew nothing about the Bible, I think by the time you got to Matthew 28 and read this, it would, it would, it would blow your mind. Why? Because every, every story, every biography that we read about of an individual always ends with a funeral. And so Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us that the gospels end with Jesus' resurrection. The story does not end with a funeral. It ends with a celebration. And all who are in Jesus Christ today realize your story does not end with a funeral. Your story just begins, actually, at the funeral. The funeral is the beginning of life. I was thinking about it this morning. I didn't have this in my notes uh, earlier uh, in the week, but when Bonhoeffer, uh, the great German Christian, was about to be executed, he had just led a Bible study on Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 1, about the living hope we have in Jesus. And when they came to take him, to execute him, he told his fellow prisoner, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. All of that's made possible because this story is true and there's grace for you. Jesus was crucified three days prior to this, the story we're reading. He had been a leader of what you might consider a lightly organized movement. He had disciples, but they were cowering in fear during this time. He had been crucified publicly and shamefully. And somehow, remarkably, verified by history, verified by the fact that thousands, millions are worshiping Jesus today, this movement exploded. What happened? How can these disciples who are so afraid all of a sudden become these bold witnesses? How on earth can this little movement in rural Galilee now reach 
the triangle here in Raleigh-Durham? Well, it's a very simple answer, and that is Jesus stepped out into the sunlight as the vindicated and victorious Son of God on Easter Sunday. You see, the church building is closed today, but the tomb is not closed. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. And because of that, wherever we're at, we have reason to celebrate. And so let's celebrate as we work through this passage uh, quickly. I want you to just uh, look at it with me in five simple parts. First of all, the witnesses that Jesus uses. The first 10 verses tell us that in this case, it's two women. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, the gospel writers don't tell us that this was the third day, though that would be true, but they say it was the first day of the week. And they're indicating for us that something new has happened. It's the dawning of a new creation. It's a word of hope. Sunday was the first day of the week. Sunday would become the day Christians set aside to worship, as we see in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Everything has changed. That's what the writers are indicating. They could have easily said the third day. After all, it's what Jesus kept saying, on the third day I will rise. But they, they, they say it's the first day of the week. It's the dawning of something new. It's cataclysmic. And so when people today say, you know, I cannot believe in bodily resurrection, those kinds of things just don't happen. <laughs> and we're like, that's exactly right. That's why it's a big deal to us. Because Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He is, he is the one who has went before us. Uh, and the writers indicate that by giving us this first day of the week note. And these two ladies are here, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It's not the first time we've seen these ladies. If, if you've been journeying with us in our gospelicious uh, weekend of services, which began on Thursday night, uh, you will have already picked up uh, a couple of notes from these ladies. In verse 56, uh, we read that uh, they were there uh, looking on uh, at the crucifixion from a distance, um, which we've learned now is at least six feet apart, I suppose. Uh, they were social distancing the cross. Uh, and then down in verse 61, uh, Mary and this other Mary were sitting opposite of the tomb. And now they visit this tomb. Now, it's not though that they could do anything to change what had happened. And, and you should realize that they were not anticipating a resurrection. Nobody was. They were there because they loved Jesus. They were there because they were devoted to Jesus. It's like they went on loving Jesus even in the darkness, even when their hearts were broken, even when they didn't have answers. There is a real tenacity about these ladies, a real commitment. I love how verse 5 says, um, the angel says, you are seeking Jesus who was crucified. That is a wonderful compliment for a believer. You're seeking Jesus who was crucified. Mary Magdalene, we know a little bit about her. She had previously been uh, possessed by seven demons, the writers tell us. But Jesus had changed her. If uh, she had been on Facebook or social media, she would have that hashtag, Jesus changed my life, and she would have been telling her story, as many of you have uh, this week, about the grace of Jesus, the transforming power of Jesus. And it says in verses 2 to 4, something happens, an earthquake happens. And it seems as though 
this angel is the reason for the earthquake. Notice how the text reads. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled back the stone uh, and sat on it. You know, it's a big deal, uh, resurrection. It, it merits an angel. It merits an earthquake. It's kind of like, uh, you know, you have a wedding and uh, you get all dressed up for the wedding and you send out special invites, you know, and perhaps you have some special food and drink and you have dancing. It's, it's a big moment. It's a wedding. Or if you're graduating, you put the cap and gown on and, and you go through all of those uh, shenanigans because it's, it's festive. It's a big deal. Well, the resurrection is, is like that. When it comes to the announcement of the resurrection, God sends an angel. It's, it's, it comes with some real style. It comes with some real class. You know, it merits an angel. And these angels are, or this angel here, Matthew 28, uh, Matthew says, is so brilliant and so majestic, like lightning, clothing like white, and the guards tremble like dead men. So we shouldn't think of an angel as some little Tweety bird. But if we would have, if we were to see one, um, we would be like dead people. We'd be tempted to worship the angel. That happens throughout the scriptures, which says something about the radiance of Jesus Christ, who's far superior to angels. These guards might have anticipated some opposition because the movement was, was growing, but they did not anticipate this. And they fell as though they were dead. But the angel is really not concerned with the guards. He's concerned with the women. As he says, do not be afraid. He has to calm them down. I know who you seek, Jesus who was crucified. And he simply says, he is not here, for he is risen. Every time I read it, I cannot help but get the baseball announcer out of my head for the Chicago White Sox. Every time there's a strikeout, he goes, he gone. That, in effect, is a colloquial way of an angel speaking, right? I know you're seeking Jesus Christ today in this tomb. He gone. He's not here. And then he gives this commission, which is later repeated by Jesus, when he says, go tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead and that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so the ladies obey, and it says in verse 8 that they leave with fear and joy. They're overwhelmed and they're giddy with happiness that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And in this moment in verse 9, Jesus meets them, and he just sort of says, Hey, greetings. Here I am. And they came up and took hold of his feet. It's a bodily resurrection. It's not just some illusion, some dream. And they worshiped him. And Jesus tells them basically the same instructions that the angel said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Well, there are two encouragements I want you to take out of verses 1 to 10. One is that this account bears all the marks of authenticity. Uh, I said that Matthew wants you to know the story is true. And there are two particular uh, points to, to, to see with this mark, these marks of authenticity. One is it's the women who are the, the premier witnesses of the resurrection. And that's an important historical detail um, because if you were living in that day, um, you would realize that you needed more than a, a lady's testimony in court. 
And it sounds terrible to say today, and it is, but it's a fact of history. And if these uh, gospel writers were trying to make up a story, they gained nothing by saying that their key witnesses uh, would have been women. Not only that, but a lady who had been previously possessed by seven demons doesn't seem like the most credible witness either. And yet they're not trying to pull something over on you. Uh, they're simply reporting that which happened. Matthew's account, like the other accounts, bears all the marks of authenticity. Not only that, but you should notice here that no one is anticipating a resurrection. If you are trying to make up a story, you don't have your key witnesses and key disciples looking like such uh, buffoons who are just hiding away, uh, you know, in a corner. Sometimes it's argued, well, these were primitive people. We're sophisticated people. We're into science now. And, uh, you know, these gullible, primitive people, they believed in miracles, but we don't, we don't believe in miracles. You should see that these disciples were not more ready to believe a miracle anymore than you or I are ready to believe in a miracle. I would even argue they're less likely to believe it um, because of their Jewish background. You know, you think about this. Jesus had told them, Mark says at least three times, hey guys, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. On the third day, I'm going to rise. And you don't have one disciple just say, hey, you know, didn't he say something about the third day? Let's just go have a look. We, we, there's no harm in going to look. But no, they're not. nobody is anticipating resurrection, including these dear ladies who show up to the tomb. They're there because they've got their spices. They're there to pay honor to Jesus who has died. No, something happened here. Jesus rose from the dead. It bears all the marks of authenticity. And these first 10 verses are also a great encouragement to us because it shows us that Jesus can use you too. If he can use these ladies, if he can use a Mary Magdalene, he can use you. Jesus Christ turns great sinners and great sufferers into great servants. So wherever you're at today, know that Jesus, Jesus offers you new life, not just a bit of self-improvement. He offers you a transformed life, and maybe you've, maybe you've suffered because you've been the victim of injustice. Maybe you can identify with this Mary Magdalene, who was a real hero on Easter. Maybe you've been through abuse. Maybe you've been through uh, addiction, enslavement to something. What's most important about being a witness for Jesus Christ is your love for Jesus Christ. That's what these ladies demonstrate here. And it's often the, the common, ordinary servant that Jesus uses. They overflow with adoration. Many years ago, a famous violinist died. And he left behind no family members and no one to whom he could bequeath his Stradivarius violin. An auction was convened in part to sell the violin. It was eventually purchased by another violinist. And this individual paid $20,000 for the violin, which was a sizable sum of money in that day. Shortly thereafter, this new owner of the Stradivarius announced that he would play a concert on this new violin. When the evening arrived, the concert hall was filled with to capacity. People were waiting in breathless anticipation. At just the right moment, he walked out onto the stage with nothing but this violin, and he began to play a composition of Paganini. He held the audience spellbound. His technique was flawless, his tone exquisite. 
and at the conclusion of the final note, the audience instantaneously jumped to their feet and roared with applause. He bowed simply and walked off the stage. A few seconds later, with the applause still thundering, he walked back on the stage, took his violin by the neck, raised it up over his head, and smashed it on a nearby piano, shattering it into thousands of pieces. He then walked off the stage. The audience was horrified. They were stunned. A moment later, a second man walked out on the stage and stu stood before the people. They became very quiet as he said these words. The violin on which the maestro has just performed his first selection, the same violin that he has just destroyed, was but a $20 violin. He will now perform the rest of the concert on the $20,000 Stradivarius. The genius is never in the power of the violin. It is always the violinist. And the same is true for Jesus' witnesses. At best, we are $20 violins. But beautiful music is played when we are taken up in the hands of the heavenly violinists. Christ is everything. We are simply his instruments. And we say, use us as you use these ladies. The witnesses Jesus uses. Secondly, notice here, the people Jesus restores. You see it just with one word. It's all I want to point out on this point. Verse 10. As Jesus says everything that the angel had said, go to Galilee, tell the disciples, I'm going to, I'm going to see them there. But Jesus says, instead of go tell the disciples, go tell my brothers. Brothers. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because we read earlier in the Gospels, like Matthew 26, verse 56, that they all left him and fled. They deserted Jesus in his darkest hour. But Jesus calls them brothers. Just one word. That's Easter grace, my friends. Maybe you're called by a particular name that only your family calls you. And when they call you, it's, it, it denotes intimacy and warmth and love and acceptance. For me, there's only one guy in the world that can call me son. Many people can call me Tony. They can call me various nicknames that I have. But only one can really call me son. And when he says son, there's a special word of, of intimacy, of love, of, of devotion, of loyalty. Jesus here uses the word brothers because he wants these disciples to know he has not cast them away. He wants them to know that despite their failure, he still considers them family. You imagine that scene as the ladies go and tell the disciples, hey, hey, Philip, John, Jesus said, go tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And maybe they thought, you know, can you, did he say brothers? Did he not say, you tell those deserters, you tell those wimps, you, you tell those backstabbers to meet me in Galilee, meet me in the parking lot in Galilee, <laughs> and I'm going to settle the score with those guys. But that's not what he says. He says, you go tell my brothers that I'm going to go before them in Galilee. Mark adds one note to this. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. That even Simon Peter, the one who said, I will never leave you. Peter said, even though everybody else will flee, I will not flee. 
And Jesus says, in, in Mark's words, you go tell Peter also. John adds in this account that Jesus says to the ladies, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus calls them family. He calls us family. Even though we fail him, he calls us family. He has previously called these disciples servants and disciples and friends, but here he calls them brothers. And that's just one step away from Hebrews 2.12 where Jesus says, or the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Everyone in the world is longing for community. And this first Easter morning, the first community is identified. We call it the church, a family of brothers and sisters saved by the grace of Jesus. I don't know if today you look back on your discipleship and you look back with disgust. You're embarrassed. You failed Jesus. And you wonder, will you ever sense his smile again? Take a great comfort in this little word that Jesus has not deserted you. You are not some distant relative. You are family. Let his transforming grace melt your heart today. Number three, the problems Jesus causes. Verses 11 to verse 15, the resurrection throws everyone into a frenzy. Some of you might recall a few years back, Tom Brady, who got in trouble with what's now called deflate gate uh, during the uh, playoffs. He ordered the footballs to be deflated to a certain weight uh, so he could uh, throw better. This is what I call a sleep gate, uh, a controversy. Uh, that is brought about by the resurrection. Uh, the guards tell the chief priests what happened and the leaders uh, think they, they need to make up some tell uh, in order to do damage control. And so we read of the, the spin masters of Easter. Tell people the disciples stole the body. Now again, as I mentioned, Matthew tells this story because he wants you to know the resurrection is true. And he wants you to be aware of false reports. And we don't have time to get in all the false reports and all the possible scenarios that people tried to paint with the resurrection. Matthew just wants you to know the one that was going around in his day is that the guards fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. Matthew really, really wants you to know the historical reality, the historical truth of a bodily resurrection. Now, what we kind of hear today is not necessarily what well, his disciples stole the body, but we hear something more overly spiritualized like this. You know, it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead. What really matters is if you believe he did. That doesn't work at all, does it? If you're running down a diving board on a swimming pool and you bounce up on the diving board to jump into the pool, uh, you don't want someone saying to you, it doesn't really matter if there's water in that pool or not. What matters is if you believe there's water uh, in that pool. <laughs> no. One causes a very happy splash and the other a very deadly splat. It's not that we simply believe in an idea today. We believe that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead bodily. And because of that, we have life. 
And you think about the whole tale itself, it just really doesn't work. You tell everybody that we were asleep. <laughs> now, why is that a bad lie? It really is a bad lie. Because it's hard to know what happened when you were sleeping. But somehow, these guys know that, oh, the disciples got the body. How do you know, pal? I was asleep. Um, it, again, it just doesn't add up. And it's, and it's hard to believe that all of these guards are asleep at the same time. That not, at least one of them didn't take some Ambien. Uh, and he's, he's alert. But this collective, you know, we're all asleep. It just doesn't hold water. What, what, what is more, messing with graves was a serious crime in the ancient world. And there's no way these fearful disciples in this moment had enough courage to go steal a body uh, and, uh, be, and, and take uh, the risk of their own lives uh, for messing around with a grave. Matthew wants to know the story is true. As Paul says at the end of Acts, <clears throat> these things didn't happen in a corner. And why is it you know, impossible for you to believe that God can raise the dead? My friends, why not simply believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Fourthly, the worship Jesus deserves. Verses 16 and 17. There's a meeting in Galilee. I won't go into all the detail here. Um, this probably happened after the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. It probably happened after John 20 and 21. It was uh, before Acts chapter 1. So we're looking at a meeting that probably took place three or four weeks after the resurrection. Um, Matthew doesn't tell us everyone who was there. Uh, it's quite possible that this is the 500 at one time that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember that there are more disciples in Galilee than in Jerusalem, so this would be where he would have uh, more disciples. Uh, in Jerusalem, there are only 120 gathered there. So this is the most likely place that gathering of where he appeared to over 500 uh, happened. And uh, some of them had not seen Jesus yet. And so I think that's the group that's having trouble believing. It says, some worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, again, a lot of these individuals would have not seen the resurrected Christ, and we know that he has a glorified body, and people have a hard time recognizing him, as Luke 24 shows us. It seems like these doubters are simply trying to make sense of everything. You know, that's not a bad thing if you're, if you're skeptical, but you're still pursuing things. Right? There is sort of a, a virtuous doubt, like Thomas. Uh, you, you're trying to make sense of everything. And we welcome you in. But there's also more of a defensive doubt that denies the possibility of answers. And it, this, again, is one of the great marks of authenticity in, in Matthew's gospel. You wouldn't end the resurrection account, would you, with him saying, some doubted. Wouldn't you just make it up where it was everybody was happy and believing? But Matthew just includes it because uh, he's, a, he's a candid witness who just puts it all out there. Some of these individuals doubted, and then some worshipped. This is where discipleship begins and where it continues, in the worship of Jesus Christ. This is the response Jesus seeks. This is the response Jesus deserves. Let us fall down in wonder and love and praise to this Savior. Finally, the commission Jesus gives, verses 18 to 20. There's one great command in these verses, and that is to make disciples and orbiting around that imperative are three participles, which function as imperatives, going, baptizing, 
and teaching. This is what we call the Great Commission. And it is great because of these four alls that we read of. The greatest authority. Jesus has all authority. The greatest mission field. Jesus sends us to all nations. The greatest curriculum. He commands us to teach all that he has commanded. And the greatest assurance. He is with us for all our days. This is our great commission. And we don't do it on our own. He is with us. Now, again, lest you think you're unfit for this assignment, there is grace for you. Consider just for a moment who has preserved this great commission text that we read all the time. That's only found here. There, there are other commission texts and the other gospel writers. But this particular great commission that we love to cite over and over and over again, it's Matthew, the former despised, hated tax collector. He writes it. He would have been like a mafia member. Jesus transformed him. Matthew 9, we read of his own testimony. Jesus simply says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew did. Let that encourage you. Jesus can transform you. At one point, when people were upset that Jesus was hanging out with the, the likes of Matthew, Jesus responded, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, that is, the self-righteous. I've not come to call people who don't think they need me. I've come for people like Matthew. And I'm going to transform Matthew just the way I'm going to transform Mary Magdalene, just the way I'm going to transform these disciples. Jesus made Matthew a disciple-maker, and he can make you and I one, too. The resurrected Lord changes people. Everything our hearts have longed for. They're found in this resurrected Savior. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, said this, The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, redemption. The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single historical doctrine, redemption. Matthew like Lewis says here, wants you to know the story is true and there's grace for you. A historical fact, God raised Jesus from the dead and a historical doctrine, redemption. He can change you. It's true. And when that sinks into our hearts, we bow with the rest of the redeemed and we worship him. Tolkien is right. The story of the gospel gives us everything our hearts have ever longed for. You can know this Savior. You can become his disciples. You can have this living hope that we celebrate today, a hope that fills you with meaning now and joy forevermore. It's all here, and it's all for you by grace and grace alone, received by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for Matthew's account of the historical fact of the resurrection and Matthew's beautiful way of showing the Savior's grace. We today are recipients, many of us who have been studying along here this morning are recipients of the grace of Jesus. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. May we never be ashamed to call him Savior 
in the public. May we live with a robust, committed faith, telling everyone how Jesus has changed our lives. Jesus, we offer you praise this morning. Be pleased with your church as we sing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. amen.